the Digital Leaders Podcast, Episode 3, Tony Blair. Technology is changing the way we connect, learn, and do business. On this season of the Digital Leaders Podcast, we sit down with some of the UK's most influential thought leaders in government, enterprise, and entrepreneurship to learn more about what they are doing to digitally transform themselves and the organizations they lead, why it matters, and what we can do as listeners to build our own prosperous, digitally enabled and connected communities. The time is now, the place is the Digital Leaders Podcast, and the future is digital. Hi guys, and welcome to episode three of the Digital Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson, the founder of the podcast production studio, SPT Digital. And on today's episode, we sit down with the executive chairman of the Institute for Global Change and former prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Tony Blair. Tony became prime minister of the UK in 1997, where he served for over 10 years and holds the record as the Labour Party's longest serving PM to date. In December 2016, he founded the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, a not-for-profit organization that aims to help make globalization work for the many, not the few. In November 2017, the Tony Blair Institute published a paper entitled Technology for the Many, a Public Policy Platform for a Better, Fairer Future. The premise of the paper was to set out the challenges and opportunities for governments in the face of rapid technological change and highlight the numerous ways in which government can use technology for good, resulting in positive outcomes for the many. For this episode, I actually had the opportunity to sit down with Tony at his office in central London to learn more about the catalyst for the paper, why he believes government needs to start adopting technology now more than ever, and his thoughts on the biggest risks facing people in the tech sector and what that could mean for public policy in the UK. So without further ado, please welcome Tony Blair. Thank you for being on the show, Tony. Thank you. So before we get started, you published this paper in November 2017. In the paper, you know, you did say that with or without Brexit, the UK really needs to adopt technology. It's paramount, especially if you're to leave the EU. So I kind of wanted to know how relevant was writing this paper as a result of the Brexit vote? It's relevant whether you do Brexit or not. Um, I mean, part of the, as you probably know, I'm passionately opposed to Brexit and hope we, we don't do it. Uh, and one of the reasons is because I think it, it's not just the destructive effect of Brexit on trade, but it's also the distractive uh, effect of Brexit because other issues don't get dealt with, Right. and technology is one of them. On the other hand, if you do Brexit, it's going to make it even more important that you take the right decisions on how you handle what is a, a technological revolution and of a different nature from anything we've seen before. And my the central anxiety I have is that the change makers, the people engaged in making these huge changes with such impact on how we live and work and think. Mm-hmm. And the policy makers, those who, who are going to have to produce the governance, the regulation and so on and work out the impact of it, that these two groups of people aren't in proper dialogue together. So part of what the technology paper done by Chris Yu, who works for the Institute, um, part of the reason for the paper was to say 
we need to handle this in a completely different, revolutionary, radical way because this is the challenge the country's going to face and it's got to address it. Right, right. And so now, were you, I'm just curious, were you surprised to see the Brexit vote turn out the way it did? Uh, yes, although I think probably in retrospect I shouldn't have been, but there's still a long way to go on this. Right. Because right. I, I think we've learned a lot in the last two years about, you know, about this distractive impact. I mean, the truth is the problems the country don't get dealt with because the bandwidth of the government is pretty much subsumed with Brexit. And right. And day and night, that's what dominates the country's thinking. And really, Brexit doesn't offer an answer to any of the problems that we have. But, you know, kind of leave that to one side for a minute. Yeah. Even if, Especially if you go ahead and do it, it means you're going to have to create a new future for mm -hmm. yourselves as a country. And, you know, ensuring that we are positioned to take advantage of the opportunities of technology, because there are many, and also positioned so that we can mitigate the risks, this is going to be the central challenge facing this country or any developed country in the modern world. Right, right. So there's a lot of opportunity, needless to say. Okay, so you left public office in 2007. And I wanted to ask you, do you think a lot has changed in government with respect to, you know, the institution adopting technology? I don't think enough has changed in government because what's changed in technology is revolutionary since 2007. Indeed, you know, you, you know the Tom Friedman book, which kind of says everything, mm -hmm. everything really took off in 2007. And, uh, you know, it, it's a... It's one of these situations where there were a whole set of changes that were kind of moving along with a certain level of progress and then suddenly this progress has accelerated and it will accelerate even again in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem is there's a misalignment between the revolution that's happening in technology and where government is, which is pretty much not advanced a great deal since I was in office. Some, but not enough. And not enough for technology adoption. No, and I think, to be fair to the Cameron government, I think they were much more kind of interested in this and on it, and the government digital service did some really good work. Right. Um, but, you know, if you compare us to other countries, I mean, I think Obama did a huge amount in the US on this. Mm -hmm. um, I think Germany's, for example, got a program about the whole digitalization of industry that they're doing. Right. And these, you know, we, we, we can't afford to be in the situation where we're not giving this massive attention and we've almost got to take a, a view about some um, fiber optics and 5G that is, you know, literally kind of 19th century mm -hmm. in its insistence that if we don't get this right, in the same way 19th century decided, right, infrastructure, we're going to build the infrastructure of the country, this is mm -hmm. how to accelerate our progress, we've got to be doing this now as a, as a country. And I think we're not, I don't think this government really particularly understands this. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think a lot of it is a result of sort of legacy in infrastructure as well? Um, I think that that's true to a degree, but I think the fact is, because there's this revolution going on around us, mm -hmm. you've got to then revolutionise the way government works. And this is why we suggest you've got to have a department that's right. actually focused on this. Right. You've got to be skilling people to make an, a, you know, a whole new you know, a whole new approach to the way we, we deal with skills and training because people are going to have to adapt enormously to mm -hmm. this and you need companies to be aware of the changes that are coming down the line of it. Well, that's one of the things I think that you guys had suggested is having this department of digital and technology and staffing it and running it completely different than traditional government, correct? Yeah, you need people who are experts in the area to come into government. You need to create a much 
faster interchange between private sector, the tech sector, and the and public service. You know, get rid of some of the sort of crusty old rules around that because right. they don't really apply today. Um, and you need to be working out in each department of government and each public service how do you take advantage of the opportunities. You know, one of the things I think is really dangerous at the moment is because there is so little understanding of the tech sector mm-hmm. amongst the policy makers. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. It's complicated. Right. And if yes. you're of a certain age, frankly, it's, it's all very new to you. So the, the thing is, if you take healthcare or education or even transport or law and order, you know, technology has the, the potential to transform positively how these services are delivered. Yes, right. I agree. So, but I don't think there's any real debate about this at the moment, never mind understanding of how you need to reshape government in order to deal with this. So this is, for me, a, just a, a fundamental, it's, it's a fundamental challenge because the real world is, is moving ahead with all this and the government world is kind of like, you know, light years behind. Right, right. Well, it's actually interesting because it's one of the things that you mentioned in your paper or that Chris mentioned and, you know, he said, and I'm just going to quote here, no politician would boast that they don't understand basic economics or the concerns of their constituents, but an alarming number are all too eager to wash their hands of the responsibility of being informed and thoughtful when it comes to modern technology. And it sort of speaks to what you're saying there. It's, yeah. you know, it's not something that comes naturally to them because it's all moving so quickly and there's not a lot of willingness to want to learn and maybe, right. and I think that's where maybe part of it needs to change is that technology piece and bringing in those industry experts to work alongside policymakers is where, you know, what you're suggesting with the tech and digital department, for example, right. is where you're really going to see that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you, you need to do that. And, and, you know, one of the things we're working on is whether it's possible to put together a, a sort of specialised unit or centre where you have people familiar with the political and policy field coming together with people who are familiar with the tech field and actually ensuring that there's a structured dialogue between the policymakers and the change makers. So, you know, my, my view is you need to you need to organise this. It's not just going to happen through, you know, the odd seminar and conference and so on. You, you need to get it done in a structured way. So we're going to try and do that from outside of government in order to inform people who are inside government. But the other risk, I think, and I think it's a big risk for people in the tech sector, is that as a result of the failure to understand you know, the one thing politicians do understand are issues around things like privacy and regulation, you know, Facebook and Google and right, all of this. Right. And the risk is that actually tech becomes the next target of a sort of populist wave, both on the right and the left, that are looking for people to blame mm-hmm. for this accelerating change when it's not a question of blaming anyone, it's a question of handling it. Right. But, you know, the, the, I can see this developing in the US and, and in Europe, and the risk is you end up with bad public policy. And I think there's a substantial risk of this. And I think the only thing I'd say to people in the tech sector, because I think, you know, sometimes they kind of look at government and think, look, you guys just, I want to stay away from you and you stay away from me. And, right. You know, because I, 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 it does my head in to deal with you. That's fine, except that in the end, government matters, public policy matters, mm-hmm. and they're at risk of being targeted by politicians on the make, in a sense, who will end up saying, look, this technology is changing your world and doing it in a way that's very bad, and you know, we're, we're going to come along and stop it all. Mm-hmm. Now, this would be, you know, in my view, a catastrophic mistake, but we're 
as the politics of the last couple of years have shown, we're perfectly capable of making those mistakes mm -hmm. in Western politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so essentially you're saying like it's better for everybody if industry experts and policymakers align and yeah, they've got to come together. We've right. got to understand the policymakers have got to understand in simple terms what these changes mean, and then we're going to work out the best ways of dealing with them. And you know, this I mean AI and and you know 3D printing and all of that will make big changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, as well, this, it already ha has, yeah, really, yes. It has already, but it's going to make even more changes mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to basic service sectors. I mean, people are used to this process of change in, in industry and in making things, mm -hmm. right? They're, inter they're used to automation displacing jobs. But when automation starts to displace jobs in insurance and banking and law firms and so mm -hmm. on, then that's going to, you know, how you deal with that. Yes. It's going to require a reimagining of the world of work, and we've got to do that together. Otherwise, you know, as I say, you'll end up with policymakers charging off down what turned out to be cul-de-sacs. Well, yeah, and let's talk about that for a bit. Like, what type of fear do you think is around technology replacing jobs? What should government be doing to sort of educate people that they don't have to worry and that there's always going to be opportunities for them? So I think you need to handle the anxieties people have around things like privacy and you need to have a proper public debate about jobs impact and how you deal with them mm -hmm. because in the end if the technology exists to do the job more effectively more efficiently it's going to come mm -hmm. so the question is literally how do you then help people and support them through a process of change and the obvious that is obviously where the role for government comes in but then government's got to itself to be creative and innovative about the solutions that it adopts and I think, you know, things like privacy, I mean, people want to know that they've got you, you, the, the, the control over control. their basic uh, information course. and data. Yes. On the other hand, I mean, in my view, we'll make a huge mistake if, for example, we're not using um, the possibility of the accumulation of data to change things like healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if you end up with China, for example, deciding it's going to, to allow the, the, an explosion of creativity because they make the data in healthcare available to people on a depersonalized basis. Mm -hmm. You know, but we decide that we're going to inhibit that. We you know we're going to find we fall behind. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to work out. You know, but then there are all sorts of issues around. You know, what's right to to allow people to use and not. But we've got to solve those problems and mm -hmm. solve them in an intelligent way because otherwise, you know, we will miss out on opportunities. I mean, education should be transformed. Mm -hmm. by technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the possibility, the thing today which we've learned is that you know, kids learn at different speeds and in different ways in different subjects. Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to need a much more individualized learning system. Technology gives you the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. The whole nature of teaching is going to change. Mm -hmm. You know, When I sit down with my uh, now 18 year old and for his last exams <laughs> and so on and, get, and go through the work that he does, it's very interesting because the teacher is no longer the source of information for him. He can get the information yes. from everywhere. Yes. The teacher's the guide. But that's a different concept. So how do you how do you make sense of that? How do you change the way that we educate mm -hmm. our, our young people as a result of it? How do you, for example, provide non-university structured learning for people? How do you make sure that people later in life are going through a continual process of lifelong learning? I mean, all of these are questions that technology can help us answer, mm -hmm. and this is the debate that needs to, to happen, but it's, I don't really see it happening right now. I think it's, you know, our debate 
in, in politics is, is really, it's not changed much since right. I was in government and right. it should be changed very radically. Right. Because other countries you see are leading the way with respect to this type of development. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, all of them have got the same challenges and I'm not saying they're way, way ahead of us, but I think they're taking it more seriously. And in any event, whatever anyone else is doing, we should be taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you mentioned Germany, and I was just wondering, what sort of things are they doing with respect to digitalization that you think that um, the UK could... So it's a, it's, a, it's a big dialogue with the whole of industry. So okay. in every sector, they're going through what difference does digitalization make? How do we make it work? How do we introduce it in a correct way? How do we have the right dialogue between, you know, employers and employees around the, 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 the impacts of it? So it's just, it's like a huge focus. Mm -hmm. um, and part of this is about focus because it's it's once you know politicians are very simple people at a certain level I mean you know they go to where the debate is I'm going to take your word on that uh, no, no <laughs> they are I mean people often misunderstand <laughs> this they're simple souls you know they go to where the debate is if the debate every day is around Brexit then that's where they are if the right. debate every day is around crime then that's where they are right. if the debate every day is around you know the impact of technology and what it's going to do they'll be there Mm -hmm. uh, but you need to make it the focus. And that's where, you know, from the top of government, the one thing you can do is you can determine the agenda. And I don't, I just don't see that happening. I mean, maybe, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Have you called Teresa? Have you told her, listen, this needs to be a priority? Uh, well, I keep saying it. You know, <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm sure if you talk to the, to, to the, the relevant government business department, they'll tell you there's all sorts of things happening. Yes. But I know, having been Prime Minister for 10 years, these things only happen if there is just an, an absolutely overwhelming push from the top, driven down through government. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's you see, I, I think, for example, even in areas like transport or law and order, the difference technology can make could be huge. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're talking about the problems of Britain today, what do you do about communities and people left behind? Mm -hmm. Well, one way of bringing people together is through you know radically renewing our infrastructure right with okay. respect to transport and, yeah, yeah. Which you should do and it should be you know a prime concern because you're going to have the ability to have very fast and efficient forms of transport you're also going to have you know in the next 10 15 years you know, driverless cars and vehicles and so on uh, maybe even before that who knows so th this is going to have a big big impact and it a lot of its impact is going to be positive. You know, and again, if we're not careful, the politicians will be constantly saying, look, it's going to lose jobs, it's going to put people out of work, it's going to make communities even more isolated. And so if you're not careful, you will create this sense mm -hmm. that technology is a kind of, you know, is, is, a, is a sort of thing that's... It's a negative, it's a negative thing. People. Yes, that is essentially a negative. Mm -hmm. And what on earth do we do to, to kind of constrain it and stop it? Well, I think... A, it won't work, and B, it's not sensible because it's also got huge opportunities in it. I mean, as I say, if you're looking at law and order, for example, I mean, I know it may sound weird to look at tech and law and order, but actually it's not. There's a whole set of ways you can fight crime far more effectively if you've got the right technological tools at your disposal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I'm curious, here at the Institute, you guys do a lot of work with governments around the world. Yeah. What type of impact have you seen working with them? So you can see with a number of different uh, countries what the impact is. And, you know, you get sort of strange things like Estonia being a leader in 
um, you know, government services, but, 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 um, uh, and, and using technology to, to improve them. And you know things like, for example, having one electronic identity for each individual, which is an obvious thing to do, by mm -hmm. the way. And incidentally, the only way you're going to control migration, mm -hmm. if you if you actually want to control, I mean, this is the point. If people want to control immigration, you're going to have to have a form of identifying who's going to right to be in a country and who's who's not. So there are countries doing these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we tend, as an institute on the ground, to work more in developing countries, right. so there's a big footprint in right. Africa, for example. But there again. You know, we are but I imagine you're using some of the things that you've learned here and just on a smaller scale in those types of countries. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. One of the things I'm very interested in doing is working out how technology can help these developing countries bypass the legacy systems mm -hmm. in the West. Because well, we've seen that with banking yeah. in those countries, yeah, which no, is absolutely. huge. Yeah, uh, mobile payment systems mm -hmm. are, have been pioneered there. And, you know, there's actually there's every reason now for these countries not to try and replicate our education and healthcare systems. Although, unfortunately, a lot of Western <laughs> donor money is, is dedicated to helping them do just that. Right, right, right. Interesting. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. that yeah, of course. I mean, if you're, I mean, today, if, if, you're, if you're in a remote part of an African country, probably the most sensible thing is not that you try and put big distribution lines through to, you know, from the centre from the power station through to the remote place because it costs it's just completely uncompetitive to do that and very very costly it's probably better to have a small mini grid or off-grid system with with uh, using solar power and you know you can make sure that you you bring then the benefits of electricity to those remote communities and with electricity comes technology mm -hmm. but then for example you you are in a much better position to do things like basic diagnostics and healthcare and uh, you can use the technology to improve education systems locally. All of this is within the reach of countries if they employ different policies. And, you know, there are all sorts of things on agriculture, on water management, you know, that can be done differently using technology. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wanted to know, our listeners in the digital leaders community come from all across the UK and all different sectors of the economy. So, what role can organizations like digital leaders play in helping you achieve your goal? I think by feeding in ideas and information and being in dialogue and, and saying, look, you should be looking at this, not looking at that, or you, you know, for example, the paper that Chris has done for the Institute, it's worth people sort of reading it and digesting it and thinking, I agree. you know, how, how, do you, how do you make this, how do you make this work? And, you know, we're, I mean, you know, our idea from the Institute is to create a policy agenda for the future that is basically progressive but can be used by politicians of centre-left or centre-right. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, politicians from any walk of life who are, are, are interested in ideas for the future because I think the problem that, that you've got and what is driving this populism of left and right, which don't really offer solutions but they offer people to blame, um, you know, the, the, the answer to that is to come up with the ideas that can chart a way through to the future with some sense of optimism. Because the politics that, that is dominating the West at the moment is essentially the politics of pessimism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and people people's feeling that the next generation may do worse than this generation. Mm -hmm. Whereas up to now, you've always had a sense of generational progress. Next generation does better than the last. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's 
literally no reason at all why the next generation can't do better, should do better. Mm -hmm. uh, because, in fact, technology will give us the opportunity yes. to achieve this. But you need to weave that into a narrative and a set of policies that mean that people say, yeah, okay, I, I, I get this. I can see how this change is going to impact me beneficially. And I can see how the risks can be, can be dealt with. Mm -hmm. But that's what's missing from today's politics. And so people on the right default to attacking immigrants and people on the left default to attacking business and neither is a solution. And both, by the way, attack globalization, which is, might be a crazy thing because it's in the end globalization is a force driven by people, by technology, by migration, by the way the world's coming together. And if you, the, the answer is to make globalization work. The answer is not to try and stop it because actually the world opening up is what has driven human progress over mm -hmm. this last half century. Mm -hmm. I love how passionate you are about all of this. <laughs> well, it's, it's right to be passionate about it, because the alternative, by the way, well, it's is the, the world closes down. Right, right, right. And you close down in circumstances where also the West has got to understand for the first time in, in, in uh, well, for the first time really in modern human history, the value system of the West is going to get contested. I mean, people talk about this Trump and the G7 and all the rest of it. At the same time, there was another meeting happening in Shanghai, led by the Chinese, with the Indians, the Iranians, uh, other people there. And that is, that's the alternative power center of the future. Now, you know, countries like India will kind of move between the two, but, you know, we need to work out how we keep ourselves in a position where we can, we're sufficiently economically strong that our values can win that contest in the 21st century because otherwise we're going to find you know and i'm look I'm, I'm a supporter of the benign evolution of china but we've got this is going to be the most powerful geopolitical change of our lifetime or your lifetime and you know we've got to work out how we handle it and we can't handle it if we close in on ourselves and turn back into you know people who prefer to be isolationists rather than um you know open to the so for anybody listening that wants to, can they contact you to work with you, even if they're in an, like an industry, private industry? Yeah, sure. We, okay. we're, you work with private industry and um, Yeah, absolutely, and, and we're there and ready okay. and open for dialogue. Cool. I wanted to ask you one last question. What message do you have for the future generation of digital leaders? Um, understand it's important to be engaged with the policy sphere. So entirely get it that you're out reinventing the world but at the end of the day you know government matters um, politics often seems very trivial and you know ill-designed for the future but actually it does matter and uh, that's not a sort of party political thing it's just if you're changing the world understand that there will be policy makers who will be passing and making policy as a result of these changes. So the more engaged you are, the more likely they'll take the right decisions, not the wrong ones. I like it. I like it. All right, we're going to go into our lightning round. So this is where I have four questions, and you're just going to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. It's probably dangerous. But <laughs> Don't worry. They're, they're G-rated. Okay, <laughs> here we go. The one book I would recommend to all listeners and why is... Oh my god! <laughs> Come on, you're on planes. You you probably read a book or two. I do, but I'm I'm not sure that it's anything to do with with 
Ted, I mean, I can well, give you a few... Well, it doesn't have to be. Just be I can give you a few suggestions, actually. Okay. I think the latest Tom Friedman book okay. uh, is extremely good if you want an easy-to-read understanding of, you know, how, how uh, a smart commentator views all these technological changes. I'm actually reading a book on the history of the American peoples by Paul Johnson, which is a great um, uh, book at the moment. And if you want something a little... Uh, if you want something a, a little out of the way... Uh, there's a book called The Chosen Few, which is about how, how and why the Jewish community became so, so important in fields of trade and finance and business. And it's a really fascinating account of uh, um, early history. So okay. uh, <laughs> those are some of the books I'm reading. I like it. I like it. All right. The one person I would like to have lunch with and why is... I feel like you've probably had lunch with a number of people, yeah, no, but, I, I, I think, but uh, is there somebody that you're still hoping to be able to sit down with? So there's no, I, I'm not going to choose a particular name, but I can tell you the meetings I find at the present time most interesting. Okay. And they're from, they're with people in tech startup companies who've got a passionate idea about how they're going to change the world. And I literally, all the meetings I do, including the meetings with top politicians, I find those meetings the most interesting. I love it. I love it. The one thing people would be surprised to learn about me is... <laughs> well, I don't know, that I used to play in a rock band, maybe, but... Uh, that's in your Wikipedia. That's in your Wikipedia. <laughs> but that uh, is I was surprised to read that, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, so the, 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 you know, when I... Uh, go and work out in the, in the gym so my kids put all of my music on you know on, on, on my what, what I listen I'm, to okay uh, in the gym and so I'm probably more up to speed with some of the crazier <laughs> elements of, are you um, a Cardi B fan is that what you're telling me no, no I'm, I'm not telling you that but <laughs> I probably more, know more about it than it's uh, healthy or advisable for someone of my age is state of life to know there you go okay and the advice i would give my 15 year old self would be learn as much as you can and have infinite curiosity and never stop having that even when instead of being 50 you're 65 which is why i'm now <laughs> what you're 65 thank you you can definitely, you can definitely interview me again <laughs> All right, that is it for this week's episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast. And now, of course, we would love to know your thoughts. Do you think that government adopting technology would be a good thing? Tag us at DigiLeaders on social and let us know why or why not. And if you want to find out more about the Institute, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash podcast, and we have all that information there. Next week, we sit down with the president of Expedia Partner Solutions, Aryan Gorin, to learn more about how Expedia is leveraging technology to stay competitive and anticipate their customers' needs, making travel easier and more seamless than ever before. That is it for this week's episode. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.